morning, everyone. Yesterday in one of the groups, um, a, uh, a poem came up uh, as uh, we were reflecting about you know, how mental formations come uninvited, perhaps, and perhaps sometimes feeling of uh, painful mental formations, being unwelcome. And, uh, and so the, uh, the poem, The Guest House uh, by Rumi was mentioned. And, um, and probably many of you have heard this poem before. Uh, so it's, it's appropriate also for the, um, the application of mindfulness that we're going to uh, explore this morning, uh, the, um, the mind. So, uh, so the guest, I'll read The Guest House by Rumi as, uh, to begin. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still treat each guest honorably they may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the malice. Meet them at the door, laughing, and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So the um, third application of mindfulness that we're going to talk about today um, is the mind. And, and in the Satipatthana, this chapter is often translated as uh, mental states, the name of the chapter, mental states. So, um, so the word mind uh, is a translation of the word citta in Pali. And there are actually several words uh, that are used to translate chitta, um, mind, uh, and, they, and they refer to different aspects of the mind. Um, so the word citta is used in this context, and, um, and often uh, teachers will will choose to um, use the expression mind heart. Uh, sorry, mind. mind heart. Mind heart, and because it's not just uh, you know an intellectual knowing, but it's a whole sense of of subjectivity. Um, one teacher, uh, Ajahn Suchito. Um, when asked, you know, uh, what, do, what is the citta, you know, and how do I, how do I experience it? Um, he said, this, 
the sense when you wake up in the morning, you know, when you open your eyes and you just, it's not something you, feel, you, you think verbally, but it's just this um, experience of, you know, I'm awake, I'm alive. Uh, you know, so it's, I, I, I think of it as a sense of, of subjectivity. So it doesn't necessarily, uh, I mean, there's an implication of subject-object, but one, one I think can just experience it as an inner subjectivity. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's interesting because these words point us to uh, ways of experiencing being with, uh, in perhaps new, um, like new horizons, new dimensions that we hadn't really looked at before. So um, I'm not going to read the whole section on mind, um, but uh, because it's long. looking for the Satipatthana in the original because uh, I cut and paste, copied and paste, um, pasted, and I, I kind of uh, <coughs> wanted to go back to the whole thing so I could look at it as I read it. Um, so, so the Buddha says about mind, here one knows a mind affected by lust as a mind affected by lust, a mind unaffected by lust to be without lust. He knows a mind affected by hate as a mind affected by hate, and a mind unaffected by hate to be without hate. He knows a mind affected by delusion as a mind affected by delusion and a mind affected by desire to be without delusion, uh, a mind unaffected by delusion to be without delusion. One knows a contracted mind is being contracted and a distracted mind is being distracted. One knows an exalted mind is being exalted and an unexalted mind to be unexalted. He knows a surpassed mind as being a surpassed mind and an unsurpassed mind as being an unsurpassed mind. One knows a concentrated mind to be concentrated and an unconcentrated mind to be unconcentrated. One knows a liberated mind as liberated and an unliberated mind as being unliberated. So, so each one of these words that I used has a precise um, kind of 
points to a precise kind of experience, and I'm not going to go into all of them. Um, I, I'm going to use this uh, opportunity to talk about the five hindrances, um, because when, when the Buddha used the words uh, lust, uh, hate, and delusion, <coughs> those are the basic hindrances, and there are two more, which are um, uh, restlessness and doubt. And, and um, so restlessness and doubt are, in a way, expressions of uh, the first three. And, and, uh, and so I'll, I'll <coughs> elaborate a little bit on, on those. I hope I'm not getting too kind of technical, but uh, in a way, the uh, well, the hindrances really are talked about by the by the Buddha in the the fourth uh, application of mindfulness, uh, in which all of these different um, ways of examining uh, what it means to be human, um, different frameworks are looked at in terms of how they arise and how they pass away and what are the conditions. And the hindrances is talked about very, uh, you know, more thoroughly there, but, but they apply here as well because in this talking about um, a mind, one knows when one's mind is affected by greed or sense desire or, or lust. Yeah, so one recognizes it, so we're coming to recognize it in, in this um, chapter on, on the mind. So, um, and, then, and then the insight uh, for this chapter on the mind is, in this way one dwells contemplating mind as mind internally, or dwells contemplating mind as mind externally, or dwells contemplating mind as mind both internally and externally. So you know, you, so you recognize these formulas that are repeated, um, and we have a tendency when uh, when we hear something repeated, you know, the, the mind tends to shut off. It's like, oh yeah, I know that. <laughs> you know, you said that before. Uh, but but it's really good to to stay with it and not just kind of shut the mind down and, and say yeah what does that mean to know the mind internally to know the mind externally like like stay with it it's uh, it's how we learn um, or else one dwells contemplating in mind its arising factors. <coughs> or contemplating in mind its vanishing factors, or dwells contemplating in mind both its arising and vanishing factors. Or else mindfulness that there is mind is simply established to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how one abides contemplating mind is mind. 
So, so first of all, the most kind of basic way, the Buddha is instructing us to shift the way that we experience the mind. Um, we experience the mind as our individual identity, our self, and and to seeing um, that it's it's the mind. So, making it a little less personal. It's not my mind. It's not my crazy mind, you know, scattered mind or what, however we describe the mind. It's it's the mind which is affected by you know, different states, um, which arise from causes and conditions. Um, so, so we see that mental events are arising and passing away, and we can consider them mindfully as objects, and and recognize them according to their characteristics. So states of mind can be um, can be recognized, and when we are mindful of the state of mind, then we're not at the effect of it. Um, when we're mindful that it's greed or it's anger or hatred or confusion arising in the mind, um, then really we are shifting our stance from being in greed to being in mindfulness. And that's a whole lot more spacious. And there's a whole lot more free to, to navigate uh, how we respond. So uh, skillful and unskillful states of mind are, are considered to be the roots of actions. Um, all actions, all behaviors, speech, originate in these states. So um, there's a, a line from the Dhammapada, one of the sort of pithy, a book of pithy sayings of, of the Buddha, you know, mind is the forerunner of all good conditions, mind is the forerunner of all, of all evil conditions or painful conditions. So the, uh, the three unskillful roots are greed, um, which can manifest as attachment, lust, or desire. Hatred, which can appear as aversion, anger, or ill will, or irritation. Um, and delusion, which uh, manifests as um, confusion, spiritual blindness, ignorance, the mind shutting down, uh, dulling out in, in meditation, or the mind going to sleep. Uh, and um, so, so actually delusion is present in all of the unskillful states because uh, if, if we weren't um, in a kind of ignorance in which we see ourselves as separate uh, from the rest of life, we wouldn't fall into greed, we wouldn't fall into hatred. There's that 
separation that has to exist, which is kind of the essence of delusion, you know, if we're going to get caught up in greed or hatred. And the skill, <coughs> the three skillful roots um, are generosity or renunciation, loving kindness or compassion, and wisdom or spiritual understanding. So when unskillful states are fueled by our identification with them, this I want, <coughs> this I hate that, uh, and they run unimpeded through the mind, then the thoughts, the words, and actions that emerge, that manifest from those uh, underlying energies um, will result in, in suffering. They'll result in words and actions that perpetuate suffering. Um, and on the other hand, when we relinquish the unskillful states and we cultivate the skillful states, our thoughts, words, and deeds result in circumstances that, that support the arising of further spiritual development. So simple. So, um, so let me talk a little bit about, about the hindrances. So some of you are very familiar with this teaching, uh, and some of you are not. So um, I think we can always hear with a beginner's mind. And, um, uh, and, and maybe learn something new and uh, discover something new within ourselves. So, so the, the first approach and what we'll be talking about today uh, to, to working with hindrances is simply to become mindful of them. Um, if we were to work more deeply with the Satipatthana, we would, sometimes hindrances are very deeply rooted. And, um, uh, and so uh, we can use other skillful means. Um, but today we'll be, we'll be just talking about how to recognize them. <clears throat> so sense desire is wanting that seeks happiness through the six senses. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking. So, uh, thought, fantasy, and so on um, is, is one of the sense spheres. It includes the desire to re replace unpleasant sense experiences with pleasant ones. And in meditation practices, it manifests as being drawn to pleasant sense experiences. So perhaps getting lost <coughs> in a fantasy, um, some, some music, just music going round and round, um, and uh, fantasies about eating, having sex, uh, obtaining some desirable object. Um, 
you know, uh, somebody who who was on a retreat when their kitchen was being renovated, and it was all about their dream kitchen. You know, <laughs> couldn't let it go. <laughs> <coughs> So um, so we, uh, we, we turn our attention when, when we recognize that, that greed or some form of grasping arises, um, we turn our attention to them, to the, the thoughts, the, uh, the fantasies, Know, in our practice, or if we notice our, in our behavior that um, that we're <coughs> we're expressing greed in some way, we can bring our attention to notice the impermanent nature of the experience. So, if it's a fantasy, turning toward it and not continuing to fuel it with identification um, can allow us to see how it how it fades away and how actually the energy you know when we're in the fantasy it feels pleasant you know, when we're in whatever we're fantasizing about it feels pleasant but when we allow the fantasy to kind of dissipate and we turn toward it and we're mindful of it and we we see it dissipates. We realize that that, that leaning out and with, with desire, with grasping, is dukkha, it's suffering. It's, uh, it's not actually um, satisfying in any way. And when we notice ourselves acting out greed and grasping, you know, just to recognize that the pleasure is very is very short, very short-lived, and uh, and so, you know, then <coughs> it's a little hit of happiness, but but then it doesn't continue to satisfy, and we want more and more. Uh, we have to do something else. We have to go shopping again, or, or we have to uh, do something else. So, um, so this um, this this shows the unreliability of sense experiences to maintain some sense of <coughs> happiness or well-being uh, within our ourselves. So, um, aversion is the impulse to push away, resist, avoid, hurt, destroy. And it can manifest as anger, ill will, resentment, hatred, antagonism, judgment, criticism, fear, anxiety, or boredom. Boredom is a kind of a disconnecting and feeling a sense of aversion toward, um, toward the experience. So... So seeing it, um, 
can uh, can allow us to also in the same in a similar way but I think even with more intensity when we turn our attention toward the arising of aversion we it, it's it's said to be the most painful of the um, hindrances so this anger this critical mind judgmental mind continually uh, you know, sort of rejecting um, what we're experiencing is uh, doesn't make for happiness. Uh, it makes it makes for a sense of suffering and uh, and separation. And so, so we we turn toward it and we recognize what it is, and we. We allow ourselves to feel how painful that is to, to continually get caught in habits of ill will, of aversion, judgment, and so on. And, um, and this helps us to, to let it go. Um, you know, we, we realize that uh, we're, you know, in, in some way, um, sometimes, these habits of mind make us feel good about ourselves, or we're trying to make ourselves feel good about ourselves. That you know we're that we're so critical of somebody's behavior or somebody's appearance, and we think, you know, I'm so much better than that. Uh, and and that actually is uh, not a happy feeling. Uh, it's it. It's an attempt to feel good about ourselves, but actually uh, we end up feeling more isolated and separate and, and not very good about our, you know, our attitudes you know, when we see them. And you know, it's, it's really important as we, as we um, discover these hindrances and work with them, it's so important that we not judge ourselves for these hindrances arising because they arise because of causes and conditions. They arise because of our, our families of origin, our experiences when we were growing up, our, um, our education, our the culture in which we live. So it's, um, these are conditionings of the mind. And, and as we become more conscious of them, uh, we are able to work with them and to let them go. And, and you'll notice that, you know, in the, in the description or in the reading of the, the chapter on the mind, the Buddha said, one knows a mind affected by lust and he know and one knows a mind unaffected by lust and so on with all the different states and so the buddha doesn't say one knows a mind affected by lust and one knows a mind full of generosity um, because because in a way, you know, generosity is an expression of a mind unaffected by greed, of 
free of greed. When, when we're generous, we're not grasping, right? We're, we're letting go, we're sharing, we're responding to the needs of others. And, and yet the Buddha didn't say that. He said, one knows a mind unaffected by lust. And that's interesting because the mind, the Buddha doesn't posit one state as being opposite to another, but there's either an obscuration of the clarity, openness, and wisdom of the mind, or the obscuration is not there, and the mind is open, clear, and the wisdom is is accessible. So, so that's a very interesting thing, and you'll find that in um, all of the texts that that the Buddha sa- says this obscuration is present or it's not present. He doesn't say what is present. He doesn't define what is present when the obscurations are gone. So um, there is there is something that's suggested to in working with uh, aversion and ill will and so on um, is the cultivation of loving kindness. So, um, so loving kindness is or metta is um, kind of in cultivating that we're I think I think of it as you know we're we're cultivating a field. It doesn't necessarily mean that every time we feel ill will toward someone that we should automatically wish them metta, send goodwill. I mean, one can do that. We can do that. But I think it's more that in cultivating goodwill, cultivating kindness, and love and compassion, we are um, cultivating a field in which ill will and aversion and hatred doesn't thrive. You know, it's, it's, it's more like that. That's how I experience it and understand it. So, um, so delusion, named in uh, in the uh, section on the mind, um, in in the, the statement of the five hindrances, delusion is expressed as sloth and torpor. So, sloth. Uh, they're kind of very expressive words, you know, <laughs> sloth. This kind of sluggish animal uh, and torpor, you know, just sounds so heavy and like like uh, like a hot muggy day like today. You know, we feel torpor; it's uh, de-energized and so on. So um, yeah, so it, the delusion, um, like, so the the mindfulness is is lost and and it's when when sloth and torpor are are overtaking us it's actually 
uh, hard to become mindful because the mind is so dull. And so it's, it's, it's really helpful if you can notice it quickly <laughs> and, uh, and try to energize yourself and um, you know, stand up if you're in meditation or if you're just feeling that in your day. You know, try to bring more energy to what you're doing, more attention, more interest. Cultivating interest uh, is a good way to to um, raise the energy. So, <coughs> so um, yeah, we can we can talk about these hindrances, you know, in, in the Q and A group if you're interested in finding out more about them. Um, another. Another ex, uh, expression, the way delusion manifests, um, and it could also be in meditation, is a kind of a holding to beliefs and ideas, um, ideologies, uh, which are not in any way supported by our direct experience. So, you know, you think of beliefs and <clears throat> some ideology or some um, uh, kind of fundamentalist belief and and it's like it creates some kind of alternative world <laughs> in which you know um, you know things things are supposed to happen but you know, they may or may not happen in the way predicted by the ideology uh, and or or the religious fundamentalism, and and so, uh, but but this the, the rigidity of this belief is adhered to um, with such tenacity and. Um, and it's, you know, there's a certain degree of uh, fear there as well, very often, that, that people hold on to, to uh, ideologies. Uh, so, um, so, that, so those are uh, the first three of the hindrances. And restlessness is uh, the fourth. <coughs> and it's... Um, and it's it's related to to um, desire in a way that the mind is you know grasping onto one thing then another then another jumping around. There's a lot of of um, of energy, unsettled energy, and um, sometimes restless mind is called a monkey mind, uh, and and we we might be dwelling on something that creates stress, anxiety, uh, and so, you know, you know, thinking, thinking, a lot of thinking, um, and um, you know, always searching for something better, um, not being content, uh, and, and it, it can also be felt as a kind of energy that wants, that wants to flee. Uh, some 
people have described a stage of restlessness as, as this feeling of wanting to run screaming from the meditation hall. <laughs> so, so this, uh, I don't know if you've ever felt that. I, I've never felt that restless, but certainly some people have. And um, <coughs> and doubt uh, refers to to skeptical questioning. So um, so you know are are these teachings really uh, efficacious to awaken to come free from suffering? Um, uh, can I often, it takes the, the form of self-doubt. So can I do this, really? Am I able to do this? This seems like, this seems like pretty challenging uh, path so for self-doubt. And, it's, and it's, it's fine to have some doubt, um, but it's when the mind keeps continuing again and again and again, over and over, over just, uh, it's kind of like we can't, we can't find a, a, a place of where we, where we can connect and stick uh, with the practice that the mind keeps coming in and, and uh, we keep sliding off the practice because of doubt. So, so it's it's good to notice that uh, it's good to notice if it's doubt about the practice itself, uh, about the Buddha, or if it's self-doubt, um, maybe doubting uh, the teacher that you're uh, practicing with at the, at the time, and uh, saying oh, this person doesn't know what they're talking about, or or I don't really feel that this person has accomplished the teachings at all. So, so, and, and so it's okay to, to ask those questions and to, to look and see. You know, the Buddha always said, you know, look and see. Uh, come and see for yourself. So, and so it's, um, it's good to look at your doubts and, and kind of observe, um, you know, do you feel that the teachings are are having an impact in your life? Um, do you feel that uh, that the teacher has some degree of understanding uh, that that you can you know, trust that what you're receiving is is uh, helpful, is valid in terms of the teachings, um, and and look at your own practice and say, you know, am I am I doing this? Am I, you know, maybe not 100% skillfully, but am I actually applying these teachings and 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 learning something and gaining some benefit? So, so all of these are ways to reflect on doubt. And then if you see that doubt is just coming back, you know, you've you've answered your questions satisfactorily and doubt. Doubt just keeps coming back again and again and again. Um, you know, and it's uh, can be 
seen as just habitual thought. That, you know, okay, I've, I've cleared up that to my contentment, and yet the thought keeps coming back. So maybe I can just let it go. You know, just recognize it's, it's a thought. Maybe it comes from certain causes and conditions in which there's a lot of skepticism, you know, in my family or in my society and, and so on. So the insight is that one, one dwells contemplated, mi- contemplating <clears throat> mind as mind internally or dwells contemplating mind as mind externally or one dwells contemplating mind as mind both internally and externally. So, you know, how do we how do we contemplate um, greed? You know, we can contemplate greed internally, but how do we contemplate it externally? Well, I think, you know, when we see somebody who's kind of driven by greed or lust, not with a judgmental way, but just recognizing that, you know, it, one can never know for sure. But it appears that that person, you know, is kind of taking more, buying more, you know, uh, utilizing more resources than they need. That it's, there's a, there, there's a certain uh, drivenness there which doesn't consider how this may impact other people or other beings. degree of, of development. I mean, greed is such a predominant force in our society, you know, which has led to uh, pollution and, and loss of habitat for other living beings. Um, so much is driven by greed. Our whole consumer society is driven by greed. Um, greed on the part of the capitalists who encourage greed on the part of the consumers, quote unquote. So there's a lot of greed unacknowledged in our, in our world. Um, so when we wake up to that, it's like, wow, <laughs> really, what do I need in my life? You know, it's, it's not so... It's not so much. I can, you know, really, what we need is uh, fairly simple, right? And it's there's a joy in realizing that, and and kind of letting go of greed. So so seeing greed arising and seeing it vanish, you know, that's that's such a powerful practice, um, like. When we feel greed arising, or grasping, or uh, you know whatever it may be, and you know, uh, you know say um, 
say you open the fridge in the greenhouse and there's something there and it's not yours and, and you say, oh, that looks good. Uh, you can feel the, the wanting arising and, and, then, and then, you know, we have the protection of our precepts. So it protects us from going into taking what's not offered. Uh, and so we say, oh, that's not mine. And, uh, and so then, as in, in that case, you know, perhaps the memory of, of our ethical commitment would protect us from following through on greed. Uh, and we can see it pass away. You know, we can see it let go. We let go of it. So there are many, many ways that these, these unskillful states arise and pass away. And it's really important to see them as they arise and, uh, and to see them as they, as they pass away. And when we see how they are impermanent, it changes our relationship with them. So we recognize that you know, we, if we choose not to follow through on greed, uh, if we become mindful of it and we don't follow through on it, that it'll, it'll pass away. And, and the Buddha said it's better to live one day aware of the arising and passing away of mental states and experiences than to live a hundred years without it. It's so such an important part of practice that we deeply see impermanence. And the final thing is that um, that the Buddha said on uh, in this chapter is, or mindfulness that there is mind, so there is mind, there is awareness, is simply st- established in oneself to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. And that is how one abides contemplating mind as mind. So, so we're no longer, we're no longer clinging to anything in the external or internal world, just allowing things to be as they are. So, so um, this is actually this this mindfulness of mind itself, mindfulness of the quality of uh, of knowing is where we pick up in the uh, anapanasati in the in, in the on, in the, uh, the third tetrad. <coughs> so uh, I'll be talking about that this afternoon. Um, 
but but that's also something that we can practice just coming back to the sense of um, the simplicity of, of just of just knowing not necessarily knowing an object but just this, this simple knowing quality which when our minds begin to quiet down in meditation, um, we can just rest in that, in that silent mind. So let's sit for a few minutes, (coughs) excuse me, and we will, um, and, and so, so what I suggest you work with is seeing the different mental states as they arise. So yeah, please take a, 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 a minute to stretch and you know, find a, uh, a comfortable sitting posture. So, so noticing how, <coughs> how states arise <coughs> and how they pass away. And perhaps noticing the quality of energy. Uh, Is it grasping, greed, lusting uh, for sense pleasure? Is it it critical, um, judgmental, angry? You know, we can see these, uh, these energies when we, when we turn, shine the light of mindfulness on them, we can see and feel their, the quality. You know, is the mind becoming dull, restless, full of doubt? See how it arises. <coughs> and, and take it as an object whenever something arises. <coughs> take it as an object and investigate, get curious about it. What is its nature? How is it felt in the body? What, how does it manifest in the mind? Okay, so let's, uh, let's practice. Good always to begin your meditation with those preliminaries uh, from the Anapanasati, feeling your body, finding a balanced and stable posture, lifting through the spine, bringing mindfulness to the fore, so kind of awakening that quality of mindfulness, of present moment, attention, non-judgmental. Feel the breath, collect the mind.
the, the tranquility and stability of mind that we're developing um, in Yanapanasati and the, the first and the second tetrad, feeling the breath, calming the body, um, opening to some sort of well-being, uh, um, perhaps uh, joy, perhaps uh, some some sense of contentment. You know, all of these are. Uh, conducive to us being able to notice the um, the hindrances, um, notice the mind states as they arise, and uh, and rather than getting carried along with them in you know these uh, dramas that we create in the mind, um, just really being mindful of them and seeing how they are impermanent. So I encourage you to work with that um, this morning, uh, and just you know enjoy your practice, uh, sitting and walking and, and yoga. So I'll see you after lunch. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Dharma Seed dot org slash donate.